Welcome back, PokerCast faithful. Bringing you guys another episode. I'm really excited about this one. I got Matt Berkey coming on for a little discussion on uh, Sulfur Y, kind of about how the learning model has changed in poker, as well as we'll get into some some strategy adjustment. I really like the talk that we had on bet sizing and under betting versus uh, more standard uh, half pot plus bet sizing. Um, we kind of uh, are in the same boat on that, so I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy the discussion. Uh, if that's something that interests you, please hit us up for some more. Also going to talk about uh, just some of the things that have been going on in my life, and uh, I'm going solo. I got Drew. Uh, he's He's got a different schedule this week, so uh, me and Matt got together, did a little uh, interview sort of thing, and uh, I think it worked out pretty well, so I think you guys will like it. So getting into it, I have been on an upswing lately. Give you guys a little update on how I'm doing. I, uh, As you have heard, if you've been listening, I've been on a bit of a downswing. I was on a challenge to make 250K this year. I have had to reevaluate because post-World Series, I just went on a wicked downer. Um, pretty much, I mean, not hugely downswing, but a lot of break-even-ish, uh, slightly losing months, so. It, it feels really good to be on an upswing, but with that said, the 250k challenge to make 250k in cash games this year had to reevaluate that. Um, I think we had a good discussion when when I talked to Jared Tendler about setting goals and how you should have a goal, but you should also have multiple goals around that. So my goal was 250k this year, and I think on a lower side, 150k a year would be awesome. So that's currently what I'm going for. And it, I think it's good to just keep motivated. So I'm not just daunted by not meeting my goal and still motivated to uh, to reach the new goal. So the new goal, 150K this year, I think I'm about 130K in the year. So it's going quite well. So with that, I've been on an upswing lately, which has been epic. We've had some really big games that have been going off over here locally in Maryland. Uh, it's been really fun. Even we played as big as 100, 200 no limit, which was a crazy big game. It was it was a pretty epic uh, session. I only got in for the tail end of the game, and man, there was money changing hands. One guy just straight up bought in for 100k, and he had like reloads ready to go too. There, the boys came out to play. It was a really fun game. Uh, so yeah, I've been um, probably on like a 40k upswing. And part of that was on Live at the Bike. Shout out to you guys that have been uh, watching the Live at the Bike and and been giving me some uh, some some love on that and encouragement. Uh, it was a really fun session. That's actually where I met Berkey, and uh, we talked about a hand that I played on there. It's actually the biggest pot I've ever played in my life. It was. It turned out to be a seventy seven thousand dollar pot. And uh, I'll, I'll give it a quick rundown because we're going to talk about it in the Berkey uh, discuss when I talk with Berkey. And so I want to give you guys a little bit of context before you just kind of hear me and Matt sort of mention it in passing, but not give a lot of details. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of analysis too. I haven't done a whole lot of studying, but let's get right into it. So the game was a 2550 no limit that's what i originally came for they're like yeah we're gonna play 2550 no limit i'm like cool that's like not you know that's not a huge game i can play that i mean it's still a big game but we show up and all of a sudden it's 2550 
$100 straddle and the straddle was putting in a $200 ante. So all of a sudden this is like a 100, 200 no limit game equivalent. It was, it was playing really big. So not surprising to see some massive pots. The one I played wasn't even the biggest pot of the session. There were a couple that were even bigger. Ryan Fee won 120k pot. So all that said, this hand is about two hours probably into the session. And so it's folded to me in, uh, I think I was like under the gun one. We're maybe eight handed at this point. And I open up with pocket five. So I have five of hearts, five of spades, I think. And no, I didn't have a heart. I just have fives. So I opened to, I believe, 600, 500, something like that. Maybe 400. I think I opened to 400. And the guy on my immediate left calls, uh, Garrett Adelstein calls on the button. And Matt Berkey defends in the big blind, I believe. So I think we go four or five way to the flop. And we catch a very good flop of 10, 6, 5 with two hearts. Now, I'm going to do actually a mixture of checking and c-betting here with bottom set. I actually think that I've changed my mind a little bit on that at this stack depth. Where I'm 37k deep, so I think in this stack depth I should actually be probably c-betting a lot more than checking with bottom set. And looking to use some of my check raises as like set of sixes I think works a lot better in set of tens. Um, but at the time, I was very much... Uh, constructing my range in a way that I would check raise with bottom sets here some frequency. So anyway, we go for a check. We flop bottom set. And the guy on our left that flat was the first flatter, he bets a 1,000 into, I think the pot was about 2,000. And Garrett on the button raises to 3,400. And it folds back to me. And I think we have a pretty clear check three bet here. I suppose we could sometime, like, sometimes flat it in slow play, but I think I'm going to save my slow plays for pretty much only top set. Uh, I think, but again, this is where I'm getting into, I don't know how I could, should construct my range because I was doing some work with some solvers that suggested at deeper stack depths that it's better to slow play with bottom set. So I'm, I'm a little unsure how I could construct my range here, but I end up going for the check three bet. I make it 10,400 and uh, folds back to Garrett and he calls 10,400. And my thinking here was that I wanted to just set up a pot size turn bet, which it worked out just fine. I actually set up a little bit more than a pot size turn bet. So he calls on the flop 10, six, five, two hearts turn is a Jack of hearts. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So I set up a pot size shove on the turn. But when the hearts come in, really my set of fives is actually not that high in my range. Because most of the hands that I'm going to be check raising are sets and like combo draws or nut flush draws. So when we see a jack of hearts turn, set of fives, bottom set is actually pretty far down in my range. So at the time, I was a little unsure what to do here. And not only that, but I'm playing this massive game. So I ended up shoving, but I think it's debatable. I think really we could, if we were to 
construct our range, like we should have some checks on turn, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know how we would really balance it though. Like if we're just shoving all of our sets and all of our flushes, we're pretty much just shoving our entire range and it's all value. So I don't know. I think sometimes we should maybe check bottom set and maybe like check a nut flush sometimes to balance. I don't know. I need to, I need to kind of plug this one in and do some range analysis on this spot. It's a really interesting spot. Um, but I do end up just ripping it in. And I think against Garrett, the guy in this hand, probably going to deviate from like a balance strategy. And I think shoving pretty much all of my sets is fine because Garrett's the type of player that's going to show up with one pair of sort of hands, like ace 10 with a heart, ace of hearts. So I think against Garrett, I'm, I'm fine with the shove. But I think if I was going to go theoretical and try to construct a range, I might want to put some hands as checks. And I think bottom set probably going to be one of them. So like bottom set and occasionally slow playing nut flush. Interesting spot. So anyway, we we rip it in. We rip in 27,000, I think, on the turn into a like 24, 23K pot. And Garrett tank calls and he actually calls off with pocket aces with the ace of hearts, which I really didn't even put in his range. It was a really bizarre hand. He decided to slow play the aces on the button, which uh, debatably is bad of like, I can see why he would sometimes do it. But as it turns out, it bit him pretty hard. Uh, So yeah, he ends up calling off and river pairs the board. So we make a full house. Uh, Little did we know we were actually fading 11 outs right there. So I guess uh, 10 outs because board pair. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty sick. It's our biggest pot ever, 77K pot. So that contributed to our upswing of uh, the last couple months. And uh, on the session, we ended up booking a 31K win, which was pretty sweet. I did lose like 20K from my high point, but you know the swings in that game are massive. Uh, when I was playing in that game, I uh, I was playing with Berkey, and he just got buried right off the bat. I felt so bad for him. He just got in there swinging and uh, and just ran into the worst foot a couple times. Uh, we'll talk about more about that when we uh, talk in the interview here. Uh, but yeah, so I guess I'll just throw you guys right over. Uh, talking with Berkey, we kind of go over that hand. We go over bet sizing and... Uh, solve for why and kind of how the learning model is changing in poker. So let's go over and hear what Berkey has to say. Um, But yeah, let's hop in. Uh, So we got Matt Berkey on the poker cast this week. Uh, Matt, how you been since the live at the bike? Uh, It's, it's been an interesting uh, five days or so. Um, yeah, what was the uh, financial result of the of the week? Oh, I got crushed. I lost one hundred and fifteen thousand. Ooh, dang, dude! Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know when we played together, you just like out the gates, you just got buried right away, and yeah. it's hard to come back when you're just stuck heaps at the beginning. Well, yeah, that game was very strange. So obviously, I'm never. Uh, upset with playing bigger and i am just a huge fan of garrett i like everything he does to a live environment 
Um, I think we have a lot of similarities. But I feel like in that particular environment, it got too big too fast. And it was just like me, him, and uh, Ryan basically playing three-handed. And even Ryan is like pretty tight. So uh, it was just a lot of like him kind of sitting back and waiting for good spots and playing 50K pots over and over again. (laughs) uh, While Garrett and I blew things up. Like I thought you were super, super active to start with. I was like, oh, yeah, he's a limit guy, man. He can't wait to get those chips in the middle. I love it. Um, and then, you know, you doubled and the game pretty much tripled in size and it kind of like almost hamstrung you a little bit too, I think. Yeah. I, I went mostly card dead towards the end as well, yeah. but certainly the game was a little bigger than I was comfortable with. And like even the, the huge pot that I won, I honestly think maybe I should have played it different, but the game was so big. I was just like, I don't, <laughs> part of my reasoning was like, I don't know what exactly I'm going to do if I check. So I just ripped it with the set, but yeah, the game was definitely big, especially for a couple guys we were playing with. I think it was especially big. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was watching that hand very closely from the outside looking in and, uh, I actually thought you played it really well. Um, when I, cause I wasn't sure what was going to happen when you, when you three bet the flop, I was thinking to myself like, well, this is a pretty interesting spot. He, he has to have, some pretty specific ranges here that, um, you know, are either nutted, which can only be sets and seem to be rather tough to have given the way the action went, just cause I assumed like those guys were going to have like blocking type hands. I couldn't imagine that like Garrett would have aces. Um, and if I remove those hands, then you're just like heavily weighted towards flush draws. And it's just like, okay, well, this will be interesting on how turns play out. If it's like a brick, is he just going to shove with one-to-one SPR? Because uh, that was basically what it seemed like you were setting up. So I wasn't like shocked to see you wake up with a set there. And I don't really think you have a choice in the matter. I mean, I think yeah. it kind of has to be raised calling a little bit wider. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think specifically against Garrett, he's going to be raising with so many more one-pair hands and a lot of players would that I think shoving is totally fine. But... I don't know. I need to, I haven't really run the spot too much in like any uh, simulations or PO or anything like that, but it's a pretty rough spot on turn. <laughs> like it's hard well, to get yeah. called by worse. The, the alternative is to not three bet, right? Because sure. at that SPR, what are you going to do? Check fold? No, that's the thing. Like I wonder if check calling has merit with certain parts of range. Like, yeah, I mean, or else I'm just ripping pretty much everything, you know? Well, I think it's kind of like the opposite. He he probably checks back the hand he had, which is like the nut hand to be shoving with, I think. Hmm. Or close to one of them. I mean, I don't think he ever has the bare ace. Like, no pair, just the nut. Right. Flush. I think he's like sometimes got ace 10 or king 10 with uh, the heart. Yeah. So I guess like those hands would maybe qualify slightly better because he knows uh, you don't have top set. But. Uh, given the way the hand played, I don't really think you have tens that often either. Right. Yeah. Well, that was a fun one. You played, you played some massive pots during, uh, during my session alone, but then I was watching some of the live stream and you were in there firing. It's kind of my thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I made a huge, I, I did play a lot of big, uh, big pots. I really only feel like I made one crucial mistake and it was against fees, uh, when, or fee, I guess. 
when he had aces and I had king queen. Um, like I, I don't mind the flop raise because uh, I feel like against a guy like that, it's kind of a battle for initiative. But once really? he so, calls, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say a battle for initiative. So what do you think that uh, the initiative gains you in that spot? Because I was curious about that. I mean, it's very unconventional flop raise. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess just uh, with as much studying as I've done of GTO and, and kind of how to poke holes through it, I think there's a lot of merit to um, kind of like dealing in gray areas with hands that uh, are probably like some of your better bluff catchers. So I think that there's room to like eke out value in spots where people are making just human errors. And really, I that, that's kind of like what the the fallacy of GTO is, right? Is that uh, we can come close to understanding it, at least as is. We're not really anywhere near solving it. And from an application standpoint, we're even further away. So uh, basically what I'm saying is I think like a lot of mistakes are made around initiative. Um, And against a really good balanced player like Fee, uh, it's probably going to border on a mistake for me to just go call, call, call with King Queen uh, on on most runouts. And I don't think that... uh, that he's going to slow down a ton. Um, Like basically I think he's already pulled pre and he's only furthering himself to those polls post. So like once he chooses to take a betting line, let's say he's doing it with like ace queen plus and uh, maybe a couple combos of suited wheel aces that have backdoors. Now uh, I think he's going to lean towards tripping with the bottom so now I pretty much have to bluff catch with King Queen because it's my best best option. Uh, and I just put myself in like a really tough spot. But if I just take initiative away, a lot of good things can happen being in position, having initiative, having a hand that qualifies as, as high value, et cetera. Right. So does that mean that you're – I mean that kind of by default means you're going to be bluff catching triple barrels less, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that that's okay in a four-bet pot. I don't – yeah, I, I suppose so. Yeah, I don't necessarily think I'm like trying to set myself up to to uh, to pick off uh, a wild and crazy bluff here. Like, I basically I think like this is where I start to be able to neutralize balance a lot is at depth. But when I make errors like I did on the turn, well, that's seventeen thousand. I'll just never see again because you know once he bet calls, um, there's just really no need for me to be putting more money into the pot. Like, uh, it, it's better for me to. Uh, keep his range wide and allow him to have some equity retention going into the river and then make a reasonable decision based on runouts, whether or not like, you know, I, I still have a hand of value. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Okay, man. You, uh, so do you have a online poker background or are you more on the live poker side or a mix of both? Uh, because like, honestly, you strike me as like, uh, online poker ish background, but you just play like street poker, man. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a good description. Uh, I don't have much of an online background. I played very sparingly. I played heads up PLO for like a little bit of my come up, um, between like Oh five and 2010, but it was like 
very, very sparingly, like maybe 10,000 hands. And okay. do you, do you think that hurt you in the long no, run? No, not at all. Uh, I think it helped me because, um, I'm just not the type to like color in the lines. I'm not really good at adhering to, uh, I guess standards and norms. Um, I, I just always want to kind of like travel down the independent learning path. So I learned a lot just through, through play and observation and stuff like that. And I mean, uh, I'm quite convinced that I've honed live skills that, you know, just don't translate. And if I had gone the way of online, I pretty much would have probably pigeonholed myself to trying to emulate everybody else, which would have left me bored and probably getting out of poker. Interesting. So does that mean you have been in terms of like studying poker, have you now kind of got into more of the solver ish stuff or at least added that to your arsenal or are you still more experience based in your, uh, in your learning model? Um, yeah, it's kind of more of like proving the experience through the solves now. Uh, I, so to give you a little bit of my background, I have a comp side background with uh, a math minor. So, um, I get it. <laughs> I, I get the analytical quantitative side of things. Um, and I've, I've always run EV calcs like way before there were tools to do it. I, I was doing a lot of this stuff by hand, just, you know, taking spots in a live venue where I wasn't sure and running the EV on the scenario, trying to, to see where it all went wrong or if I just got unlucky. Um, but I never took it much deeper than that. And, uh, I liked the idea of studying theory. So like my first, I guess, uh, experience with it was 2011, 2012, maybe, uh, when sauce started to first put out video series on run at once. Um, and one of the first things he did was the, the toy game series. And that just really, really caught my eye. Uh, it reminded me of a lot of like what we were studying in comp sci and stuff like that. And even though I never, ever wanted to do that for a career, there was a lot of it that intrigued me. Like, I really enjoyed writing algorithms. I hated programming. Um, and I think that kind of speaks a little bit to, towards, like, the way that I think. So kind of being able to theoretically define these things became incredibly intriguing to me. And uh, at the time, I was broke, so it made it a lot easier to study. Um, so I really went down the path of trying to, to both, I guess, qualify and quantify what my strategy was. And I just started in the re like most abstract realm. Just, hmm. you know, what am I trying to achieve? What, what do I think my strengths are? What do I think my weaknesses are? And I went as broad as humanly possible. And I kept working and working and working and funneling more and more towards narrow. And the thing about solvers is it's, it's uh, largely micro-learning. So you're really examining very specific spots. You're examining, uh, if you get a little bit broader, you're examining trends, you're examining uh, common play. Um, but it's all assumptive based. And obviously there's like margin of error there. Um, right. And the big thing that I personally find, and I think uh, a lot of people who get swept up in the wash of trying to study this game is you have to spend a lot of time learning the macro first. If, if you're not good at the big picture concepts, it's really, really difficult to 
find any value in examining your EV with a check versus a bet. Totally. And I think also when you go macro, it's much easier to stay current with the game because I find a lot of a lot of uh, people I've met or people I know when they do go micro, like you're talking about, they can like overanalyze these spots. But if you don't have that framework for it, then like, OK, now the game changes or people aren't three betting super wide like they used to or, you know, like the game can change. Things go in and out of fa- fashion and uh, kind of left behind if you don't get the kind of theory based part of it. Yeah, for sure. And. And, you know, to be quite fair, most avenues to study these days really are micro-based. Uh, and I think that's always been the case. We might be seeing like a small shift in in that category now. But um, even uh, even like Run It Once or Upswing or, uh, you know, whoever else is out there doing it, like Jonathan Little or everybody else, they, they all have the same leaders. Or, sorry, <laughs> that implies... Uh, the head of something they all apply the same or they all have the same lead into uh, their site. Right. It's always like watch this video on how to do X, right. Whether it's like Mm -hmm. play early position or play pocket jacks or whatever, or they have a chart, like study our preflop chart. Uh, You know, all, all these like small bits of things that are problem areas for less experienced players. And what happens is it, it enters them into the learning curve, which already has a barrier in and of itself. It's tough to even get into the learning curve because this game is robust and challenging and requires a ton of intellect. And that that in and of itself leaves a lot of people behind. But if you're lucky enough to get into the learning curve through one of these pathways or even independently, what often ends up happening is you stay down that micro learning path where you're trying to find justification for you know, why you play jacks this way or, uh, you know, why you're, you're three betting the button so much, or basically you're just like taking off these little niblets of, of things that are part of the game, but don't really encompass a much larger strategy. And yeah, I think like GTO, uh, when you begin to understand it in a holistic sense can alter that for you. But I think nearly nobody gets to that point. And, you know, I say that relatively speaking, like there might be thousands of people who are at that point, but it's out of however many tens or hundreds of thousands of of, of people are actually studying this game. Right. Yeah. So I think you bring up a good point. Now, one thing I was going to bring up with you is like you're mentioning the kind of the training or the learning style of poker has evolved. How, like you were saying, it used to be like watch videos, watch people play like card runners was just like an endless library of kind of mediocre products, but that was like just what, how people learned back in the day. And I think upswing to some extent has kind of streamlined and brought more curriculum based. Um, I've really looked into solve for why, what are you guys doing? That's maybe different than previous models. Um, yeah. So I, I guess like we we're doing, we're trying to stay away from the video learning obviously because i think that that's been done and been done really well it's really difficult to challenge run it once whenever it comes to that arena um but really beyond the actual medium or platform that we choose uh my big thing was i wanted to do something very holistic and i wanted to do something very big picture so uh 
we have basically just like created a path where the barrier of entry is less and, or at least we try to lessen it. It, it may not actually come to fruition, but um, you know, we try to uh, kind of remove the barrier of entry into the learning curve as best we can. And then have just like a clear laid out path um, for how students can progress. So basically people come to us, they, they fill out an application and just through a series of questions, it's like, well, if you're too soon uh, for kind of like high level strategy construction, let's start you with the primer. And that's basically just like, like you were saying, like curriculum based, a 10 week long course, uh, once a week, two hours a week, um, where we're just hammering out very simplistic entry level GTO concepts. Um, and I think that's really important because I think when people think of like beginner courses or primers or whatever the case may be, they're actually going too far back and they're insulting their audience, right? It becomes like, uh, a lot of lessons on, well, you should open fewer hands under the gun and more hands on the button and right, never really right. quantifying why. Uh, but the why is like the most critical part because that's where the, all the analytics are actually taking place. Uh, so, yeah, we just like step them through this process where um, there's a very obvious goal along the way. And that's that's kind of not to be cliche, but to solve for why, uh, you know, basically throughout human nature we've approached problems in the same way and it's identify what it is, identify how we're going to solve it and then move on. And what that leads to is grabbing the most efficient, uh, quick solve that we can possibly find. And that's fine when you're talking about survival things, creating fire, uh, protecting your loved ones, eating all of these survival tools. It's, it's very important to solve that way because identifying the why is relatively meaningless in the moment where you're trying to uh, stave off death. But in an evolved society where your basic needs are basically taken care of and you start to get to complex problems, like, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to use like life problems in comparison to poker, but like poker is a very robust, difficult game. Well, now it becomes much, much more important to find the most optimal solve rather than the most uh, efficient, readily available one. All right. Yeah. So you guys are going, like you said, more macro. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, on a lighter note, I've got a couple of viewer questions. Shout out to people in chat right now. Uh, <laughs> this one's good. Buford want, wants to know, does it suck wearing nice suits and then drawing a seat next to a smelly bum? <laughs> uh, I don't know that I've ever been in a suit sitting next to a smelly bum. So no, oh, running good. Suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike wanted to know about your flop race with King Queen. I think we covered that, so uh, we'll leave that one. Any anyone else with uh, questions in chat? Feel free to hit us up with some questions. Um, so to get on a more uh, strategic poker strategy level, um, I've been looking at, and we did an episode on bet sizing recently, mm-hmm. and I've noticed that you are not one of these small bets guys where, you know, I've talked to a lot of friends, we've talked strategy and this like bet third pot with your entire uh, betting range sort of thing. And I'm not a big fan of it. And I think I'm pretty confident that you're not either. Oh, I hate Um, it. Is that true? I I absolutely hate it. Uh, All right. And I'm curious why. Um, I think a big part of it is just, uh, price. I think 
people were making fewer and fewer range errors when laid a massive price. So basically, uh, and I've talked a lot with a few people who I think kind of get it. Um, you don't really want to condition people. And that's one of the biggest problems that I think the small bet does is it, it kind of conditions people into a proper response. So basically, uh, once you start going this uh, small bets type strategy, what happens is you're, you're of the assumption that your opponents are like no longer overfolding or you're of the assumption that they're overfolding so obliviously that the bet sizing doesn't matter. And both of those extremes do exist, certainly. Uh, there are a lot of old man coffee types that I'm sure I could bet a quarter pot against, and they would fold the exact same range that they would fold if I bet full pot. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of great players that it won't matter if I bet full pot or a quarter pot. They're going to respond as close to optimally as humanly possible. But those are the outliers. The vast majority of the field that I'm going to be playing against, especially in a live venue is reacting. And anybody who's reacting can be conditioned. Anybody who can be conditioned means that we should be taking manipulative uh, type strategies to get them to do what we want. And if they've chronically been overfolding, then I'm not going to suddenly entice them to stop overfolding by betting a third pot because it doesn't take much. All it takes is doing something out of the norm, right? And if you bet a third pot or a quarter pot once and it works, uh, even the most oblivious person is going to kind of take note of that and uh, understand like, oh, he's, he's now laying me a better price to these flop bets. Um, I guess I'm going to have to start calling more. And what that will translate into is now when we bet half pot, it becomes less effective. And I think that that's like just a massive, massive problem. Right. I also like, I haven't done a whole lot of work on it because I'm just kind of like, at least come, I play a lot of live poker and at least coming from a live perspective, I just, I'm not a big fan of it in general, just mm -hmm. because bet sizing large tends to be, uh, bet sizing live tends to be larger. But I imagine if I look at it from a theory kind of solver point of view, like, yeah, you might have a similar equity on the flop but i just wonder how that's going to play out later in the game tree too because if you're going to be c betting i assume you're going to be c betting a little wider when you bet third pot and i just wonder how that's going to affect your range later and like it's so easy to isolate it and say oh my solver says okay to bet a third pot here with my entire continuing range or whatever but i i kind of suspect that it's going to lead to very very complex strategies on later streets yeah, I think that's a big problem is that uh, I think too many people are probably examining this in a decision by decision type basis. Like, uh, what what does the solver say to bet here? Well, it's leaning heavily towards uh, a small bet here um, and showing that it's slightly higher EV than half pot, and which is slightly higher EV than third pot or uh, three quarters pot. But... Um, if the decision tree is massively truncated on turns and rivers by betting three quarters pot or half pot and the EV is close, I don't really think that um, you're doing yourself much of a service implementing this type of strategy. Uh, and and I, think, I think that's kind of the rub uh, is that, you know, like I was saying, when only certain people 
ever make it to the level of of understanding game theory as it's intended, then you just get a lot of people, the masses really, just caught up in the wash where they understand certain bits and pieces of it and are drastically misapplying it, even with all of the tools and software available to them. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, cool, man. I, I really wanted to get your input on that because you being a big bad guy, I think we uh, we kind of see eye to eye on that. So on a lighter topic, uh, what's what's going on with your vlog? I've seen you've been doing more vlogs recently. You've been getting into that and how you liking it? Uh, yeah, we, we just wanted to get to the point of being a little bit more consistent. So we're releasing like every 10 days or so. Um, man, I love it. I hate it. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where um, I don't mind being on camera at all. I love that we're just putting it out there and just being like super transparent. But I feel really uncomfortable just like being in a public place and turning a camera on. And honestly, I even feel uncomfortable being in uh, a small group of peers and doing it. Um, like when we were live at the bike, Doug was, uh, you know, he was doing all his social media stuff right in the middle of the room. There was probably only five of us in there. He doesn't give a shit. This is a part of his business strategy. <laughs> and I think that's great. And I wish that uh, I wasn't uncomfortable doing that. But it's like, it just feels so awkward still. It's like, I don't, it's so hard to get, get behind the idea that like somehow in society, there's going to be a big chunk of us filming each other. Yeah. I, I thought about doing vlogs and stuff too. And I agree, man. Like, I don't like even taking pictures with my, like asking someone to take a picture of me and my wife. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm weird about it. And also the, I don't know. It's probably just a personal thing of what we're comfortable with, but like almost like ignoring the rest of the world because I'm so caught up in like taking a vlog or whatever. I don't know. It feels weird. Yeah. There's a certain certain level of vanity that I think you have to possess uh, to really feel comfortable in your skin to do it. And it's like, I'm just not there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, dude. I, I don't know. I got a couple friends that do the vlog thing too. And and they just rock it and like, good for you. I, I just can't bring myself to do it. Yeah. It's nice for us. Cause there's, you know, it's a team of us. So like, there's a lot of times where there's all three of us in a venue and, and we can kind of like play off of one another and stuff like that. And we're not really doing it in the traditional way that, that everybody else is where it's okay. I got a hint and you know, then we just go into it. I would get bored of that really, really, really quickly. Yeah. So uh, you guys are doing a lot of that, um, for solve for Y promotion and stuff. Um, you guys got any, uh, upcoming solve for Y stuff? Um, yeah, we're kind of, uh, tailing off for the end of the year, but we got a lot of stuff going on next year. Uh, so we have an elite Academy in December that that's full. Um, and we're actually going to do, I, I forgot about this. This is a good thing to mention though. Um, so when we did the seat giveaway, to the October Academy. Uh, a lot of people gave really good submissions and um, had like really good, uh, I guess, pay it forward ideas. So um, to the ones who didn't actually win the seats, I reached out to them and said, you know, like uh, really inspired by your pay it forward. I love the idea of it. Like what can we do to help facilitate it? So uh, one of them uh, was Andrew Piper, who is also that's my boy pipes yeah, 
Yeah, so he had a really cool pay it forward. It was right after the uh, the shooting in uh, Las Vegas. He wanted to do something to uh, kind of help the victims. Um, so I reached out to him. I was like, hey, let's facilitate this. Like, uh, I'm all for it. Like, anything you want to do. Uh, and basically, we decided that we're going to try to get, like, all the vloggers together to start promoting uh, a GoFundMe page. It was originally going to be for the victims, but we found out that there's actually already a GoFundMe uh, that has, like you know, $11 million. So we wow. made, we may deviate towards something we can be a little bit more impactful with, uh, possibly like, uh, you know, homeless people for the holidays or something like that. Um, but we're basically going to start doing a drive between now and, uh, December 19th. And then on December 19th, um, software wise is going to host a, uh, like charity home game, I guess. Uh, we're going to live stream it on Twitch uh, we're gonna have a bunch of people come through, like guests commentate it. It'll just be a good time. It'll be like a little bit of a party atmosphere. We'll do a little bit of a, uh, a charity drive on Twitch while we're doing it. Just you know, trying to get everything in place. But uh, I think it'll be kind of a good venue to uh, kind of bring the the vlogging community together as well as the poker community as a whole behind a, a decent cause. No, that's awesome, man. I I, I love when when poker like actually has some impact on the world you know it's so easy to isolate ourselves in poker so it's really cool to hear yeah yeah i think it's like a super intelligent community and uh it's kind of crazy that we just go to casinos day in and day out and just trade blinds back and forth it's like everybody's so (laughs) so much more and and having like such a real world impact that uh it's nice to step back and figure out avenues of which we can do that amen uh, I'm curious, uh, solve for why is it more like, I'm, I really should have done more homework and figured no, out it's, it's what fine. you guys were all about, but, uh, it's good for people that also don't know. Um, do you guys do more of like a one or two day, like almost boot camp like thing or, uh, what's, what's kind of the setup of, uh, of a typical solve for why? Yeah. So the, uh, the regular Academy is, uh, it's three days and, um, it's broken down into three parts. So the first third of the day. We do uh, nothing but strategy talk. Um, it's basically a, uh, a breakdown of how to properly construct a strategy to begin with. And then going deeper into that, like what a properly constructed strategy looks like. So I largely divulge like what my strategy is, the process in which I went through creating it, um, and you know how uh, other strategies also are framed out. So like, you know, we examine like what a balanced strategy looks like uh, versus an exploitative one, et cetera. Uh, so that goes on for the first third of each day for three days. The middle third is uh, the students play uh, a five ten game where um, they're not actually risking money, but they're playing for coaching hours. So uh, in order to properly incentivize them, whoever has whoever wins the most amount of money each day gets one hour of coaching. And then whoever wins the cumulative gets three hours of coaching. So basically, no matter what, you're never out of it. Like every day you have some something to chase, even if you've been getting crushed. Um, and it also kind of like uh, helps alleviate some of the variance. While yeah, that's, that's a really cool incentive. I like that. Yeah. So like while that's going on, Christian and myself uh, are watching the whole cards and live commentating everything. So all of the students get to take home. Um, nine hours of game footage where we're basically analyzing everybody to the fullest. 
Uh, and then the last third of the day is all business focused. So Elliot Road does a presentation one day. Uh, we do a presentation on how to structure a proper poker business from the, like all the back end aspects as well as like defining your goals, uh, what it is you hope to achieve, how you plan to grow. And I think this is really crucial for a lot of people who come to us because they're in that phase where they're like between stakes, uh, be it at a point where they're trying to get out of one, three into two, five into five, 10, or, uh, you know, more commonly between two, five and five, 10, where it's too big of a leap, like one, three to two, five, isn't that big of a transition, but two, five to five, 10, especially if five, is uncapped is pretty massive. And, uh, I think it's like coming from somebody who's gone broke quite a few times, just, uh, trying to play to my skill and not concerning myself about the business side. I think it's really, really important to have some sort of education there. And for most of us, that's not our background. So it's like, I personally learned the hard way. Um, and for everybody else who doesn't have a business background, it's like, I'd like to help you prevent that. Very cool, dude. Yeah. I, I think that would be, man, if I would have had that years ago, I might not have gone broke so many times, but, uh, it sounds like a, it sounds like a great, uh, little academy. I yeah. think it's awesome. Do you have a uh, long-term plans for like expansion and getting bigger? Yeah. So, uh, we're going to start expanding next year. Uh, we're going to implement a, uh, a tournament Academy, um, which will be available to 27 people instead of nine, uh, have kind of a cool idea, I think for this as well. Um, so each day of play is actually going to represent a day in the, or, uh, a stage in the tournament. So basically day one will be early stages, day two, middle stages, day three, everybody will be at a final table. And the way it will work is, um, Every time somebody busts, they'll re-enter with an average stack and we'll just put another entry mark on uh, or I haven't quite figured out the math yet. We might have to put up like uh, X amount of entries in order to equal that chip stack. Um, But basically like when it's all said and done, instead of it being a 27 person tournament, it'll probably be like a 400 person tournament. because people will be re-entering constantly getting the average stack. And then they'll just get like a tally mark against them every time that they have to re-enter. Uh, so we'll dis- distribute the prize pool according to how many entries you had in it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, so like basically day one, everybody will play the whole way through. They'll bag up chips. Uh, day two, they'll come back. Same thing. They'll keep entering, re-entering with uh, an average stack and coming back. And then day three, we'll have three individual final tables. Um, and then, you know, they'll play down to a winner. Obviously, uh, each spot will pay out something accordingly. Um, and then we're also going to expand to, uh, original content. Uh, I think our production crews, like our massive unfair advantage. So we're looking into doing, um, a few programs that like, you know, basically like taking the vlog, taking the vlog to the next level, um, and getting to a point where it's like super polished. We actually have a storyline a lot closer to like what we did with dead money. Very cool, man. That stuff sounds great. I think especially the tournament, uh, the tournament curriculum or Academy that you have lined up, I think you'll get a wider net with that. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. I would definitely be interested in that too. So cool, man. I'll keep a lookout. Uh, yeah, do you I got think- any, you back from LA back in Vegas now? Yeah, I just got back uh, Sunday night. Um, I'll be here till the end of the year. I think, I hope. All right, good. Guess uh, you've been on the road for a bit, huh? 
Yeah, yeah, it's been a busy year. Honestly, it's just getting busier. We just uh, we just signed the lease for our our new headquarters, so I'm trying to outfit that with like all the equipment. We're getting three more tables built. Uh, it, it's it's this process never ends. Yeah, it's a good kind of busy though. Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. I enjoy it to the fullest. It's just it seems like there's never enough uh, water to put out all the fires. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, let's wrap it up. Do you have any, uh, what's the website? Solveforwhy.com? Uh, yeah, the new one is, it just went live, but pardon our uh, dust. It's still kind of like under maintenance. Uh, but yeah, solveforwhyacademy.com. Okay, cool. And what's your uh, socials? Is Berkey11, I think, on Twitter? Yeah, Berkey11 on everything. Um, and then Solve for Why Academy on Instagram and Facebook. Cool. I'm so glad uh, I got to catch up with you and thanks for coming on this uh, little pod. I got to talk some strategy and kind of talk about how we, how we learn poker. I think that's really valuable and something not often talked enough about. So, I so it's really cool having, having you. Me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Big shout out to Matt for coming on the poker cast. Really appreciate him taking the time. If you guys want to find out more about Solve for Why, solveforwhyacademy.com. Um, sounds like they have some really cool stuff in the pipeline. So uh, I'm excited to keep up to date and see what they got coming out. Uh, a couple housekeeping things. If you guys want to get some emails in, top2pokercast at gmail.com. Uh, hit me on the socials, Twitter at Chase underscore Bianchi, uh, Instagram Chase Bianchi. Uh, you guys know what uh, what to do. So until next time, we'll see you.